Hello everyone, and welcome to the Windcast. This is a very special episode where I get to conduct an interview with one of my newly acquired friends here in Malawi. His name is Evan Joyce, and Evan comes all the way from Ireland. Say hi, Evan. Hi. Hi to all the Windcast listeners. <laughs> Sorry, that was a bit demanding. I wasn't trying to tell you to say hi. But anyways, this, again, is going to be a very special episode just because I get to introduce you to one of my friends, and you get to hear a little bit about someone else's story and specifically some of the work that they are doing here in Malawi. And I just think it's great to hear different perspectives. And for those of you who have been following the Windcast this far, this, I believe, will be, this is episode seven. So this will be the second interview. And I think I mentioned in earlier episodes that one of the one of the greatest parts about doing the Windcast is finding incredible people in the world and getting to hear a bit more from them. So we'll just go straight into it. Um, Evan, welcome to the Windcast. Thank you. Yeah, happy to be here. Yeah, Yeah. it's great. Um, Well, for our listeners who probably don't know anything about you, tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are here in Malawi. Give us uh, some details about your story. Yeah. Mm. (laughs) Okay, well, I came to Malawi in 2019, just after Cyclone Ida hit southern Malawi it really did some damage in Mozambique and Zimbabwe on the way over as well and uh, I, I was an aid worker for what seven eight years at that point okay and um, I'm a member of Ireland's Rapid Response Corps which uh, is a great title for <laughs> a group of people who are basically unemployed aid workers okay <laughs> and uh, uh, there's, I think there's 150 of us on this roster and um, basically you get these when a UN agency in an emergency in a humanitarian catastrophe uh, has uh, a gap in their staffing that they can't fill internally mm-hmm. they send the jobs back to Geneva okay. UN he- headquarters or an office at least that deals with all countries that have a standby roster of humanitarian experts or professionals okay and then that's just blown all over the world to, to, to all the, the national rosters. Okay. And then sent out to, to the people who fit the profile. And it was for a job to be a community engagement person for UNICEF in Malawi. Okay. Basically, the, the context was that there was more than 100,000 people in southern Malawi who were made homeless and displaced by the flood. And, and uh, UNICEF wanted... Uh, a community engagement action plan and strategy on how to make sure that they were reaching everybody and this is part of the UN's mantra and the broader humanitarian community's mantra now um, under the the sustainable development goals it is about reaching the furthest behind first and leaving no one behind okay Um, and I've worked for the UN in different agencies in different countries before okay and I knew that how it always goes down on the first day in the job in the UN when you're a consultant with the UN you go into the boss's office and they have well hopefully they have your job description in front of them (laughs) and 
but quickly it's pushed to the side and they say, listen, it's an emergency, it's a changing context, here's what's the priority now, and you end up doing some, some job that they don't want to do, nobody in the office has wanted to do for the last <laughs> few weeks, but that has to be done, and out the window goes your job spec that you signed up for. However, on this occasion, because I was being paid for by the Irish, um, and I could see, I was, I was ready for it, so exactly that happened with the job spec and the boss, and I said, oh, but, but I have, I'm here to do this community engagement work. Right. And uh, I, think, I think we might need to change, talk to the embassy about this if there's going to be a significant change in the job description. And then the boss just folded straight away and he said, because oh, Ireland's given loads of money to UNICEF for different <laughs> stuff. Okay. And then that really opened the door for me having six months of roaming around southern Malawi in a UN car with a UN driver, which was great, but total freedom to just do this community engagement action plan and strategy for UNICEF on how to reach these really, really uh, remote and rural communities that have been affected by Cyclone Idai and who are affected by, uh, you know, in Southern Malawi, it is uh, regularly affected by floods and, uh, and cyclones and will be increasingly unfortunately because of, of climate change um, and it has been since records began uh, well on the western side you know Livingston while he was coming up the the Shire River 160 odd years ago right. he was already talking about floods then okay um, and yeah it's just part of the part of the, the makeup out here and uh, so that involved then that six months of work it was brilliant I got to visit these communities on five islands in southern Malawi um, really really cut off and it was I, I felt it was it was a great um, to really fulfill the mandate uh, of trying your best to leave no one behind in a in a UN uh, program okay yeah okay so <clears throat> We're gonna go backwards just yep. a bit, if that's okay, before we kind of dial in a little bit more on what you're currently doing here in Malawi, because I know you have since left the UN, right? And you're kind of doing some, mm -hmm. some of your own stuff here. But as far as community engagement work and community development work, what is the thing, or maybe what are the things that got you interested in this kind of work to begin with, like what inspired you to come and to work with the UN, to mm. stay in Malawi after leaving the UN? What What's the story there? Um, um, I suppose, like, I wanted to be an aid worker for when? Since my kind of mid-twenties. I went on a volunteer, as a volunteer teacher to slum schools in Delhi when I was 21, and that was really an eye-opener. Um, not only to global inequalities but also to being an, an aid worker being a viable career option this isn't something that you can this it's not something that's limited to a summer of volunteering sure you know there's um uh, there, there are lots of opportunities there and i'd always really loved uh traveling um and and then I volunteered with different organizations um, in Ireland and in France as well, for where I lived for a while, uh, and then finally got a, a master's in humanitarian aid uh, in Dublin. Okay. And that, that opened the door to those professional 
jobs in the sector, but I always wanted to be in at at the cold face, you know. I what, didn't want what's, what's that? For, what's the cold face for those of us who don't know what that is? Well, like? I suppose it's not in an office <coughs> all okay. of the time, saving people <laughs> Microsoft Word and PowerPoint presentations. <laughs> all right. Yeah, and. Uh, and that was what I ended up getting into because after the master's program, I got this golden ticket to, to do an internship in the European Commission's Humanitarian Aid Department in Brussels. Okay. Because uh, they part funded the master's. And it was a fabulous experience professionally to, um, to see the whole world from uh, an eagle eye view, you know, very up, up in the sky at the top of this massive international bureaucracy. But at the same time that had um, that had rock-solid information or, or very good information about what was happening in the different crises all over the world and just to see the dynamics of how the European Commission works with the nation-states around the EU. Um, it was fabulous, but it was not why I wanted to be an aid worker. Sure. Uh, that was really running up and down corridors, uh, you know, putting together folders and files and briefings and all the rest. <laughs> uh, very interesting for that period of time. And then just bit by bit, then uh, I was 10 years in total with different agencies, um, but always from the first three years in Brussels, then I got to three years in Zambia, uh, where I was working for the World Food Programme, and I was much closer to the field, but I was still really the director's, you know, lackey for, <laughs> for doing all the, the, the little admin jobs and the calm stuff. Um, but. But bit by bit, um, I just got more closer and closer into the fieldwork, into project management, and that's where I am now. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so you're 21, you do this first internship, you said Delhi, right? That's mm -hmm. where you first traveled, and that's kind of where things really started to open up for you, like, as far as diving into this kind of work. So I'm going to ask a, maybe a, a deeper question, or maybe not deeper, but just a prerequisite question, like... Was there, I don't know, was there like a seminal work that you read? Was there somebody that you looked up to? Like before you got tw mm. to 21, maybe somewhere, you know, you're young, you're a young lad or you're, you're a teenager and you just, what locked you in on aid work or was that just a dream since you yeah, were a child? Yeah. Like what, uh, what was the inspiration for you to, to even travel to New Delhi to, yeah. or to Delhi to, to kind of do this stuff? Yeah, um... Good question. Um, I think I think my uncle Joe, who's a missionary priest, okay, uh, in a very very un inobtrusive way and not at all pushy, in a passive way, he was a great inspiration. Okay. Um, Joe is now coming up on eighty years of age in Pakistan mm. entering his 54th year of being a missionary priest wow. in serving some of the world's poorest and most vulnerable communities he's we worked all over the Philippines Chile Peru Pakistan um, and and he would always come back something well he wouldn't always come back at Christmas but it, you know once every couple of years he'd be back I remember um, when I was five or six, we still have photos of it. He came back with this, from Pakistan, with this mujahideen kind of goatskin waistcoat and hat. 
and and he'd always come back with coins. Somehow I got into interested in collecting coins. Okay. And I had coins from about thirty different countries that he'd come back with, and but he'd never say a word about his faith, um, or there was just nothing pushy about um, about it. You know, and and also then I my parents didn't bring us to church as I'm Irish as 90 something percent of Irish people are I'm Catholic um, <laughs> but because almost everybody is Catholic you don't really understand what it is to be Catholic because it's almost just in the DNA yeah right uh, <clears throat> or there's nothing there's no other group at home to compare yourself to oh well that that's what it means it's not I mean see it means I'm not like that okay um but uh, parents didn't bring us to church, even though we're from, there's a priest, uh, there's Joe on, on my father's side of the family, and there's another priest on the other side of the family. Um, and so it was just the inspiration of somebody who would adventure mm. and travel the world and help. That was clear, you know, he didn't need to make any religious references for us to know that that was what he was about. Sure. Um, so yeah, he's always been. Uh, yeah, I th- I think Joe is a big part of the inspiration for what I do now. Okay, well, Uncle Joe sounds like I. I think we've talked about him before. Mm-hmm. Maybe that was on the island, but yeah, you mentioned him to me, so it's coming back now. But sounds like pretty incredible person, mm-hmm. Uncle Joe. He is, yeah. <laughs> well, so moving forward, I'll kind of set the scene for all of all the Windcast people who are listening now, Evan and I, we haven't known each other for a very long time. It's actually been probably a couple of weeks at this point since we've really kind of started, you know, having conversations with one another. And for a couple of weeks before I went on my trip to Ethiopia, you know, we had, Evan and I had some mutual friends. They were trying to get us together. And we're trying to get us to have a conversation, specifically Rachel. She was just like, I think you guys would get along pretty well. And we're like, yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. And I think we met once at Pakachiri and, uh, you know, but it was very brief. I think you had to move on pretty quickly. And then coming back from Ethiopia, I was at a coffee shop here in Zomba uh, at Kefi and Evan, (laughs) just starts kind of walking up the stairs I, I think it's around lunchtime or something like that and uh, I had just ordered my meal and Evan comes up we start kind of having a conversation and you know we just end up sitting down having having lunch together and it what was kind of just started off as a simple conversation turned into I don't know a two to three hour dialogue hmm, over yeah. pretty much anything and everything and uh, we're just getting to know each other and the conversation just got deeper and deeper and deeper and that's when I really learned and was just super honestly I mean I was inspired to hear about the things that you were that you're doing here in Malawi and some of your background and like working with the UN like I don't know many people I think you're the only person actually in my life I know that's worked with the UN this very large global organization that's working in various various degrees and so I was just kind of blown away by some of your story and it just kind of took you know everything kind of took off from there and we recently Evan invited Uh, myself and uh, a couple others to where he's at right now which I might say is wrong but 
Chisi Island. Oh, yeah, perfect. Is that yeah. great? And uh, to see a couple of things that you've been doing for the last couple of years uh, there. And so will you tell us a little bit about, again, I think you've, you've left the UN mm. at this point, but you, you've decided that you, you want to stay in Malawi to continue doing developmental work yeah. or community development work. What, paint us a picture, what, what does that look like? What are you doing? What are you up to on yeah. GC Island? Okay. Um, <laughs> Okay, so Chisti Island was one of the five islands I visited in 2019 while I was working for UNICEF in the wake of Cyclone Ida. And and then I went home at Christmas, six-month contract was done, and then I decided that I wanted to continue my work in Malawi. One of the biggest insights and a, a central tenant of the Community Engagement Action Plan that I did for UNICEF was the importance of preschool nurseries as um, a, a hub and a focal point for kind of communications with other uh, organizations in terms of, of a small community structure that is consistently found in almost every single village in Malawi. Well, you'll certainly find an awful lot of children in every single village in Malawi. Right. And you'll also find mothers who are looking after them. Uh, sometimes teaching them often, more often than not, uh, just minding them because the, the mothers, they might not have, um, they might not have had primary education themselves. And so it was, it was to look at how you could work from the preschool nursery outwards in order to help address some of the major humanitarian and development challenges that uh, rural poor communities have here in Malawi. Um, and and also it was in in that six months you can't just from the point of view of unicef unicef like wanted information from the communities and and these kind of lots of information but you can't just go in and say now can you you yeah you voluntary (laughs) nursery teacher can you just send us this key information uh all of the time maybe on a weekly or a monthly basis we'll say um that doesn't happen without giving something back Right. you know, to that community right. and and something that's useful and needed and that they're asking for. So all of the nurseries, I visited more than 40 across these five islands and on the mainland as well. Wow. They had five main needs that they all talked about. Okay. They said, we have no teacher training. We have no teacher resources. We have no salaries. We have no lakuni pala. We have no porridge for the kids. Ah, oh, okay. Ish forgotten the fifth but let's focus on the teacher training and, sure. the, and the teaching resources okay. and to to address that problem whatsapping my sister Alva um, who's been out here as well for a couple of stints since 2019 but she's a uh, primary school teacher and a very good primary school teacher and I was saying Alva every time I get out of this UN Jeep there are loads of kids here and because people aren't so functional punctual for the meetings I'm normally just with these kids for half an hour before all of these meetings and I was giving out crayons and paper that I'd have in the you know draw a picture it was very interesting actually to say to the kids draw a picture of what makes you happy you know uh, and in the wake of a crisis like this of a flood where they're displaced and they'd often come back with pictures of houses and you know, okay. it was uh, that in itself was, could could have been elaborated as a study. But Alva said, "Flashcards, Ev, give that a go." Um, 
you know, just A is for apple, B is for ball, C is for cat, but with numbers and different types and shapes and things like that. So I did that, um, um, made a few just on coloured paper and quickly realised that Malawian children in Malawian dusty villages, the paper flashcards last about 15 seconds. <laughs> and then we started, okay. I started to laminate them. And by the time I was coming home, uh, Christmas 2019 at the end of the UNICEF contract, we'd had, we, we had the bones of a prototype of, you know, a set of different lesson plans for, from everything from numbers, letters, um, to environmental sustainability stuff, you know, of nature, of leaves and mountains and trees, you know, you could, you could do something with it. Sure. And so I decided in early 2020, just as COVID was taking hold and starting to spread that, but, you know, not, not knowing what was really about to come, <coughs> that I would come back to Malawi with no contract and I would buy a motorbike and <laughs> I had about 500 colour photocopies of the first prototype that were still going to be laminated here. Uh, but anyway, I brought the photo <laughs> coloured photocopies with me and uh, travel and visit the five islands and just work with the nurseries on this. We called it school in an envelope because this laminated flash card set would sure. fit in a big plastic envelope. And that would be, you know, the idea was something really low cost, easy to use that could make an impact. Sure. And um, and Alva was a great help with with all all steps of it, and now she's leading that that part of the project. Uh, but of course, um, got to Malawi in mid February twenty twenty. No cases in Malawi yet of coronavirus, but it was only a matter of time. And also, it was like, what is this going to look like? Right. You know, this was the time when there was the lorries full of coffins being on the TV screens from Bergamo in Italy. Right. And it was like, what is this going to be like in Africa? Yeah. And it was it was pretty scary. Um, and and I remember I was sitting in Pakicheri because okay. that's where I, I had my tent and my bike. And I was realizing that I am uh, uh, just a lone traveler a white traveler so obviously you know not from here roaming around a country that in the midst of a global pandemic where the virus is transmitted by travelers right so i thought <laughs> this this isn't ideal and um something's not seeming right here <laughs> yeah and i really didn't know what i was at but and i, I remember being stressed for for the couple of days before the flights ended and also the the vibe in Pakicheri was not good there were mm. all travel all um international tourists who were from all over the country they were kind of congregating there and just the conversation was just this three minute loop about what the latest news headlines were and what the flight situation with flights out of the country was right and i remember i moved my tent right down to the bottom of the garden just to get away from them all and I had a couple of anxious days until I decided, oh, no, that's it, I'm staying. I'm staying. And whatever may come. And I said, I'm an aid worker. And I've managed to get to one of the least developed and poorest countries in the world. Right. Just as global travel locks down. But who knows what's going to happen? <laughs> and I remember getting a newspaper, just the local daily national newspapers here in, in Malawi. And one headline was um, 
nine killed in mob violence in Nkota Kota. Nine bloodsuckers killed in mob violence in somewhere up north of the country. It's like bloodsuckers. Bloodsuckers. Like, what is, what is it's, that in reference it's to? It's something that's happened a few times over the last couple of decades in Malawi. Just this kind of rumors of witchcraft <clears throat> that turn into accusations of are, are people disappearing because there's bloodsuckers on the on the just witchcraft and rumor mill that sure. leads to mob violence. Right. And that was that was you know I'll, I have to admit I said this is this is scary you know right. <laughs> you know if uh, if how are they going to interpret coronavirus, um, but I got a call from the Irish embassy, uh, who are you know who who I knew the staff there from the previous year with the UNICEF contract, and they said Evan you you haven't replied to any of the emails about you know getting on one of these last flights that are leaving, I said, no no Anne I haven't. <laughs> um, so, so you're staying then? And I said, I, yep, I am I'm staying. And okay. then at the end of that phone call, that was when all the anxiety went away. That was it, right? I mean, let's let's do How it. How fascinating! Yeah. Okay. And then the real, the real kind of just providence and faith and coincidence and serendipity and <laughs> synchronicity all started the to kick in. The stars align. <laughs> Honestly. Then I'm going, so as well as the 500 colour photocopies, I also had about 200 primary school readers from my primary school and Alva's primary school back at home in Leeson County, Ireland, that had been donated and the intention was to give them to the nurseries here. And so I loaded them up in the back of the bike because this was you know, 20 kg that I didn't need to be carrying around for going where, I don't know, uh, for the next while. So I drove down to uh, to the port out to Chissy Island. Okay. Um, and I gave them to a boatman there. And I said, here, look, you can um, take these off my hands, give them to the nurseries. He was he was also a nursery volunteer teacher, so. Um, and then in that conversation, there was also a chief there and the chief goes, do you know, do you know that Irish priest? He sometimes <laughs> goes out to Chissy. Hmm. I go, no. <laughs> and I'll, sure, I'll drive you up to his house. And drove along behind this chief to... All of the missions I've noticed in Malawi are these... Are covered in trees. All the trees are gone. Well, lots and lots of trees are gone here. Right. But around the missions, they always keep the trees. That's true. And it was like that. Um, an oasis emerging out of the plains down in Mwambo Chieftaincy down there. And then uh, out comes this uh, Irish priest, Father Owen O'Donnell, from Donegal. He's in his 60s. And he says, oh, oh yeah, I should come in for a chat. And we went in and we had a good old chat. And he established then that, right, you're, you're on a motorbike, you've no job, you uh, are currently camping. At that point, I was on top of Zomba Mountain <laughs> camping up there. Okay. I'd moved from Pakacheri. And uh, listen, there's a teacher's house that is now vacant because the schools had been, been shut down at that point and right. the teacher sent home. Um, be 9,000 kwacha a month for rent, which is $9, right. 9 euros. Right. <laughs> uh, if you wanted, it's there. And I said, thanks very much, Father. I'll, I might take you up on that. And, <laughs> and the friendship began. Right? And yeah, and, and it was great. And I remember on the very first evening when he, the, he said, so you come, come for dinner, you can have dinner with us. And otherwise, that's your house over there. And I remember uh, there was talk with 
there was two other Malawian priests in that house and just before dinner we were sitting in the sitting room and they're chatting about the mass the next morning and uh, I inquire oh what time is that <laughs> and then he just turns to me and says hey you don't need to be doing any of this hey, you're, you know you're grand you're, you're, in, you're on independent by yourself you're saying that a priest was telling you not to worry it, it was, yeah. about coming you to know, mass. He was, he was, he was just picking up. Yeah, exactly. These I are, love it. These are Irish Catholic missionary priests. They are gold dust. Honestly, these guys. I'm catching a theme. They're Irish priests. Don't seem to be very yeah pushy, right? I no, mean, like not, Uncle Joe, right? Not at all. <laughs> okay. Um, but you know, before COVID started, um, my, one of my New Year's resolutions for 2020 was to meet my mentors it was just an idea that was there there was there's been there were five of them there still are five of them but joe was one of them mm. to meet them if possible in 2020 and it would have mean meant going to pakistan to see joe and uh that didn't happen obviously with covid um but father own then became that in a way for me that year okay so um so the the thing was just, uh, you know, I'd have dinner with them, but it was just sitting, having dinner with them, getting an insight into it. Oh, yeah, and th that was the thing. Why I really wanted to meet Joe as well and see him at work was just to understand what makes these guys tick. <clears throat> and right. also because in, in, the, in the years of humanitarian work that I'd done with the big UN agencies, when you finally get to that last mile place where people are extremely poor, the most vulnerable. Right. Who do you find there? Priests and nuns. <laughs> yeah. And, and they're the only organizations you'll find there and certainly any of the ones who are living there. Sure. And so in terms of the effectiveness of international humanitarian aid, in my mind, you can find no better, no more effective. No, no one who's more effective wastes as so little and um, it just really understands the communities that they are trying to help and it's it's solidarity mm. it's often when i was working in brussels it'd be in every speech by the commissioner and you know in the main message we're so, this is about solidarity with these people in need but sorry it it just rings hollow when you see you know international governmental aid often how it's directed and where it's not directed mm. um Think of uh, the migrant crisis, uh, you know, the refugees coming across the Mediterranean, right. how they've been treated. But, um, but solidarity is something that really is there and is so important sure. with the missions. And, and, you know, there was no question. It wasn't even conceived for a second that Father Owen and his or the other missionaries would head home at the start of COVID. Of course not. No, yeah. but every single international organization called everybody back. The yeah. country emptied right. of all of the, the, the developmental and humanitarian uh, organization staff, with the exception of core staff. Right. They were kept in the, but they were kept in, they were kept in their gardens in Lilongwe, hmm. you know? Yeah. And there was no movement. So, um, sorry, I think I'm, I'm maybe rambling off no. the point. No, no it's, not, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there are no tangents. Okay. <laughs> there are no tangents. The wind cast yeah. stuff. <laughs> Um, well then that was really f that was a great insight into missionary life and also how I don't know if this happened for you and I know it's happened for a couple of other people when they went into COVID 
but just how because every time just stopped moving as it normally moves it was i mean yeah i think for a lot of people it was just a brief age of uncertainty right and i mean for people even to to this day we we speak of covid you know as something that has passed but i mean it's still affecting people i mean we're probably a little outside of like the major things that were happening in 2020 but it's like yeah it's it was a period of uncertainty i think for a lot of us and i was doing something completely different but i think you're right mm. it was just yeah that the the feeling of time just kind of pausing and the world around just trying to grasp and wonder yeah what 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 do we do mm. what will this look like in a couple months i mean i don't think anyone really knew and no. especially in america at least there was where i'm from and texas the uncertainty wasn't just about coronavirus, but it was also tied up with what is the media saying? Is this just a hoax that the government is doing? You know, there were so mm. many other like theories going on there. And so anyways, I could rant a little bit more about that, but back to your point, mm. definitely time stood still. Yeah, I think. yeah. It, it was just, for me, it was just a, like free time. It was just, it was paused and then I'm just in this village and really can't move, I can't be moving in and out of town, you know, when, when it's all about everybody and the message was clear from government all around, stop moving, stop mixing. Um, and I did go to the morning masses at 6 a.m. Okay. with Father Owen, all and right. he gave me, um, he gave me, uh, it wasn't a, it's kind of like a Bible, basically it's the, the different readings each day in English, he said, you'll need this because you won't understand any of the Chichewa, which is <laughs> okay. how they say mass. And it was only for the first month it was only uh, Father Owen, the two Malawian priests and two Malawian sisters because they couldn't open the church either and they just go into the little chapel and um, I really enjoyed that kind of morning meditation, getting up, wandering across at dawn as the lights rising mm-hmm. into the chapel and then you don't, I really enjoyed not knowing any of the words right. in the service mm-hmm. and just this lovely hum of Chichewa and then the uh, the sisters, one of whose died since actually, um, would would start with hymns as well. And meanwhile, I'm flicking through readings of this and that and whatever <laughs> else. And um, and then you know the readings, the the context of what they're writing about and um, and the stories. It just suited the context of Malawi so well as well, because you're in this rural, um, a very traditional society right. and communities, right. uh, where, for example, agriculture here hasn't changed in hundreds and hundreds of years. Right. You wouldn't know, maybe since the time of Jesus, <laughs> they've, they were still using hoes there and they're still using them now. Mm. You know, it is that kind of really back to basic thing and you can, you get then there was more meaning that could more easily be derived with much less degrees of abstraction from some of the stories you know sure uh, the mustard seed or i can't i can't think of them now but anyway um just a lot of jesus's parables in general yeah 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 um and that was very interesting um and then i launched a gofundme with advice from my family uh, we had a kind of WhatsApp call one weekend and they were all sitting around the dinner table at home and uh, she said, look, you need to do a GoFundMe. You need to do videos of yourself as well because I was just sending the odd f- 
photograph of what I was doing, but not putting the camera on myself. And then I remember my, I, I was kind of saying, ah, yeah, but I don't know. I don't want to make it about me. And, and then my father just said, Evan, suck it up. That's, that's what's needed. All right. And you can't be here with the begging bowl. And we've, they, no, he didn't say anything about the begging bowl. But basically, my family and friends in a WhatsApp group that I'd had from Zambia. Yeah. When, um, when I left Zambia, I left my motorbike, lovely dirt bike, with the best farmer that I've met in Zambia, and I think in Africa, minor Chabota. And I said, this is yours on condition that it's only used as an ambulance. And it was because there was an eight-year-old girl in her village who died of a fever. Okay. It's like an old Irish song, Molly Malone. Mm, she died of know. a fever and no one could save her. And that's just how so many kids die around here. It just... They don't get answers. They don't know why it happened. But anyway, this eight-year-old girl died of a fever. And uh, left the motorbike for with Minor. And, um, um, oh yeah. And so then did a WhatsApp group with some family and friends who are donors to the motorbike ambulance in Zambia. And then once I was in Malawi and started on COVID work, just tiny stuff, just giving out soap and give, giving out soap at demonstrations at water pumps in the morning. Uh, it it needed to go bigger. So anyway, launched a GoFundMe based on my fer- parents' advice there, got 20,000 euros in a couple of months, and we gave wow. out... That's a, that's crazy. It was. It was it was amazing. It's the kind of the phenomenon with sudden-onset humanitarian disasters. You know, like when the tsunami hit uh, Southeast Asia in, I think it was 2004. Right. There were aid organizations having to write back to donors to say, I'm sorry, we, we have too much money. Can we use this in a different crisis, please? Like, you know, the slow onset ones. I had no idea. That's yeah, yeah. unbelievable. Wow. Yeah, so, so, but it was a great thing to, um, to receive so much support so quickly. And we gave out more than 50,000 locally made face masks and bars of soap. Wow. Uh, in the area down there in 120 something villages um, and it was such an intense but such a whoa, so fulfilling so satisfied wow. uh, I suppose it amounted to six months well it kind of three or four months of the first wave and then afterwards just after Christmas in early 2021 there was the second wave here in Malawi and um, and all the while every evening coming in for dinner father own and he's been here that's what I didn't say yet he's been here since 1983 only in Zomba that's 39 years he knows everybody and you'd come back and you'd say oh yeah I met this fella earlier today and he um, he was saying he might be able to do that for me father own said not no forget it not him no (laughs) you know but this other fella or this woman (laughs) she's she's rock solid Mm -hmm. you know and that's so important in getting things things done right in the right way yeah. with the community yeah you know the the biggest unknown i'm finding now with my work on chissy island is the biggest determinant of success is meeting the good people i don't yet know mm. and he already had that nearly mm. four decades of of knowing the so it was it just went so well you know i was putting on the un project manager hat Right. From professional experience, but marrying that with his suggestions and tips on, you know, the local context. Well, just his experience. I mean, 40 years. It's like, how do you argue with that? No, no. Right. uh, And it was was really, really good work. Mm. It was brilliant. Okay. 
and um, and then to get to Chissy Island. Sorry, I'm taking a long way around <laughs> no, here, it's but great. Uh, yeah. but it was then. Oh yeah, before I met Father Rome, <laughs> when I brought those books down to the dock, uh, to the lake that leads out to Chissy Island. Chissy Island was kind of number one on my possible places to go. Okay. As of uh, when was this? End of March. 2020 okay but the thing was that how do I make sure I'm not patient zero hmm. on this island that's you know f- finally their remote and isolation serves them something in terms of protecting them from COVID and I just I couldn't be sure of it and when I was camping on top of the mountain before I met Father Own, I was trying to isolate safely there for two weeks okay. but you'd still I'd still have to come down and get food in the local supermarkets and you just I just couldn't be sure Right. So it took until October of 2020, mm. after six months in the village with Father Owen and Satima, uh, that I went out for a visit again. And I brought the flashcard packs. And uh, and I don't know, there's just something about that place. I'm, I'm thinking now of how I, f- I felt and experienced it in 2019 and 2020, even with just a couple of visits done. It's just every time I went there, it was I just felt like this is where this is where I'm supposed to be or sitting around by myself uh, with my tent in the evenings uh, just the ideas coming of the jobs that could be done um, and I, I still can't explain it properly but there's mm. just something that draws me to that place and uh, that I feel that's where I should be and that feeling I guess just hasn't gone away okay. and um and then what happened, I visited once and I said to come back and this is, this is now late 2020. Anyway, it was basically halfway through last year, 2021, I, um, I decided what I'm going to do is I'm going to live on Chissy Island until 2030. Okay. And I'm going to try and help through a community based approach achieve the UN Sustainable Development Goals mm. in health, education and nutrition for the island's 2,000 kids. Okay. About 4,000 people on the island, 2,000 being kids. That was another factor in it that with the the 20 odd thousand, it was more than that by the end of COVID, that had been used for the COVID response on the mainland around Father Owen's village. Um, the money disappeared so quickly, as it should have in an emergency humanitarian operation sure um and it wasn't intended to have any long-term benefits but it really was like pouring water on a hot sandy beach Mm. and it's gone in a second afterwards right and um and that that's fine the flashbang humanitarian stuff for the emergencies it's it's great it's 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 really adrenaline fueled and it's uh you're doing great work um but it's not like, and I know other colleagues who who just do the emergency circle. You kind of get burned out of it, and mm. you're exposed to an awful lot of suffering as well. Um, and your response is never enough, and no matter how many hours in the day you work, mm. and it's not any kind of solution to the deeply ingrained problems of why there is such extreme poverty um, here and and the suffering people face. Right. Um, and I wanted to go back to school in an envelope. Mm, yeah. uh, the preschool thing. So so that was it. Then Chissy seemed like the perfect place. There was already 
eight nurseries on the island, preschool nurseries, that I'd met and visited those volunteers in 2019 with UNICEF. And also it was 4,000 people mm. on an island. And maybe following the missionary approach, but without the Bible, with the project management style of the UN, but really in deeply embedded in the community, with the principle of solidarity there as well, um, that to try and come up with the methodology of how to move the needle in a in a measurable, methodologically correct and rigorous right. uh, way on Chissy that's you know that's also sustainable and that's scalable. Right. That's the thing that it could be replicated elsewhere. Mm. And um, and so October seventeenth, twenty twenty one, just over a year ago, I took my flight. I. I took a flight back from Ireland where I'd been for a couple of months just to see my family after COVID uh, back to Malawi and that day I remember because that was the 10th anniversary of my first day at work in the UN or in the EU in Brussels my wow. first uh, you know that was a decade of professional humanitarian work and now this decade is going to be for for well I don't know <laughs> <laughs> for Chissy anyway until 2030 that's the plan 2030. 2030, because okay. that's the time frame of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Okay. Um, and yeah, okay. that's where I'm at. Wow. Yeah. And I'll just comment. I mean, <laughs> have you seen the movie Tarzan? Do you know what I'm talking about? Like the no. Disney movie Tarzan? I know, no, not for ages. Honestly, you know, this might be a silly comparison, but going out to Cheesy Island, it reminded me a lot like the setup to the Disney movie Tarzan. You know, it obviously there's kind of a. A sad part to the beginning but like the the story is you know these uh, this family gets um, I think they get shipwrecked onto onto this island or maybe not even an island but on this land there's nothing else and they kind of just build from the ground up their own their own home mm. and uh, they just kind of incorporate themselves into this essentially it's a wilderness right I mean that's kind of the, the and there's things that follow that but going to the island <laughs> and you know, getting in the boat, you know, strapping up your motorbike, putting our luggage mm -hmm. in, crossing over the lake, which, you know, I think you mentioned it's not a very deep lake, but I mean, mm -hmm. it, it's a lot, it's a, it's a good sized body of water. Yeah. Second largest in Malawi. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I actually, I didn't know After that. Lake Malawi. Yeah. Okay. No, it's, wow. a, it's a big lake. Yeah. I, I didn't know that. And so it's like, you know, we're crossing over, we dock, we get to the island, we start making our way up kind of up this hill. And we make our way to your place, and that's the part that kind of reminds me a little bit of the, the mm -hmm. build-up to Tarzan. Is just you've kind of created your own. I mean, not kind of. You've created a home, mm. uh, and it's it's. I don't know how to paint the picture of your home, but I mean, it's very open. You know, there's not there's not really any walls. You have you have roof. Yeah. You know that kind of covers some different spaces, and uh, I love seeing. I just love being in. In, in your in your space where you know you have boards hanging down from this kind of thatch based roof you have sticky mm -hmm. notes mm. everywhere that's labeling your goals what you know what is a priority what isn't a priority uh, what needs to get done you know all of these different things and the most impressive thing was I mean you're doing this I mean you're working with Malawians which is fantastic but I mean you're not you're not on a team anymore mm. you're, you're not not really I mean you you have support back home from mm. 
uh, partners in Ireland, if I remember talking mm-hmm. to you correctly. Yeah. But I mean, as far as like being on the ground, being in the field, you are the centerpiece that is kind of making this work kind of happening. And I just found that to just be truly phenomenal. And what what is this might this might be a deeper question for you, but what is that experience like? Not being like on a team Mm. on a day to day basis, but you have you've taken a big risk and most people would find like what you're doing to be just very courageous just in general to be living and working almost isolated you mm. know to an extent on this island and it you know it's not to say that you don't have other friends outside of the island or anything like that like right now we're in zomba mm. and things like that so it's not like you don't have any other connections or you're there as a hermit all the time but it's i guess what i'm like what is what is that experience like for you because i know there's a lot of people in the world that might be listening to this and they might be they might be hearing this and they might be going that's that's insane i could never do something like that but it could also be interpreted as like there might be a lot of people who are listening to this and are like i've kind of always pictured myself kind of doing something similar but i've never been able to take those next steps so like mm. what what is that experience like for you kind of doing this essentially on your own yeah well isolation is certainly the hardest part of it <clears throat> without a shadow of a doubt yeah um, and I suppose it's not to discourage anybody who's considering it but it did take me this is a this is a natural progression mm. from years of gradually going more and more towards the field mm. and um, and there's there's definitely a moment where and it took me a few months during 2021 to decide I want yeah I want to do this am I able to do this and wrestling with some doubt and right? here here we are even the Catholic missionary priests think I'm crazy yeah 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 uh, but but they're a huge part of the inspiration for it mm. um, and I don't think them and a Mr. Stephen Carr, who lives okay. on the other side of this mountain, okay. a 93-year-old uh, OBE uh, awardee, uh, the Order of the British Empire, for 50 or 60 years of service in different African countries, spending normally six to seven years um, where he started in South Sudan in the 1950s. And uh, he was a trained uh, agronomist, okay. And um, went there with the intention of, you know, helping people increase their farm production, as is still the case with every agricultural NGO and thing out here. Um, but he quickly recognised that they're not they're not planting things in these rectangles <laughs> as we've been saying that they should, and what the textbook says, and then. He realized that, uh, like, for example, they don't plant things in, in straight lines because one of the things is that, well, in order to 
make a field you have to all stand shoulder to shoulder and hack into the ground together with your hoe and then you clear a big thing it's not going to look like a square but then afterwards the sun gets too hot so that's it until after the afternoon we're not going to come back in the afternoon and make it a perfect rectangle what's the point of that how are you going to move you know and and you know from the, from that is one example he just said right that's it i can i I'll, I'll be he was an anglican missionary but a lay person okay and uh, um and he just went and lived with his wife for six, seven years out in the middle of nowhere in South Sudan and, and worked with them. And I'm not sure about the, the lasting impact of the South Sudan uh, stint, but afterwards he went to Uganda and with his agricultural training knew that, hey, at this latitude, this climate, this soil, tea could work. Hmm. There are towns on hills in Uganda, tens of thousands of people that wouldn't be there if he didn't stay there and years and years and uh, and just understand the problems from the community's point of view and then bring in that little bit of uh, of expert knowledge that just that that isn't there the the science behind it and but more the most important thing was just the approach mm-hmm. um so that was an inspiration and the the missionary priests um when you when you're sitting beside somebody like Father Own, who's 39 years here, and he will be here until his last days. Yeah. And I asked him that, and his response was, would, would you, I asked would you go home to retire? And he said, nah, they do good funerals here. <laughs> <laughs> and like, that level of dedication. It's and from my Uncle Joe, like 54 years, and he's only coming home because he has to come home. Hmm. You know, uh, there... And I, I've met the others, and it's not the preserve of the men either. There's sisters at home. I met a, a sister in my home village, of, or she's from my home village, Clonaslee in County Leash, Sister Bridie Hogan. I met her first in 2016 in Zambia. Okay. She came to Zambia the year I was born, and she worked out there in a village in the back of beyond. Like, I didn't even make it to her village three years in Zambia, even mm. though, you know, I, it was a place I would have liked to have visited. And um, when when you see their commitment, eight years doesn't seem so long mm-hmm. on an island like that. Sure. Uh, they think I'm a bit crazy though because I am doing it alone, as you said. And they always and it's really important. I've seen within the missions I visited here, especially in 2020, when every other foreigner was gone from the country. I'd have to go up and down to Lilongwe a couple of times to get money from the Irish Embassy mm. for the COVID project, and I'd stop at the missions, um, just drop in, and you know, you just—it's like your dinner and your you're looked after for the evening. It's sure. always great chat, yeah. and even better if you bring up a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> and um, I love it. Um, and yeah, they always have their community, and I learned a lot, especially from a father, Brendan O'Shea. He's a, a priest, a young missionary priest, well, by the standards of today, he's 50. Uh, he's from County Kerry in Ireland. Mm. Um, and they've stopped doing the real, uh, how, to, how to put this, they've a hundred, so I stopped at his mission as well because they do a language course in Chichewa and I realised that that was going to be a massive barrier especially to living alone on an island like this and they do uh, a language course in Chichewa that's 
a, a, a course that hasn't changed in 40 years because Father Owen did the same language course. Basically, you do two or three hours of lessons in the morning. This was in Father Owen's time. And then they put you in the back of a Jeep after lunch and they drive around in a big loop in the parish and they just drop you off sitting under a tree in a village somewhere. So we'll be back now in three hours when we do the next lap to pick you up before dinner. And that's the approach of teaching the language. And you know, if you just stand under a tree in a random Malawian village, yeah. you won't be alone for long. There'll be been my know, experience. Yeah, yeah. there'll be there'll <laughs> Even be kids first of all, and uh, and they all want to chat. And it's the same formula. So so I was there for four weeks with Alva as well. She was out at that point, and. Um, and we did the language course and also we, we had dinner with the priests um, and Father Brendan got to got on great with him and got all of his stories and also took a book off the shelf of their bookshelves there which was about the history of the Montfort missions in Malawi that goes back to the early 1900s. The Montforts are the, are the same order as Father Owen is part of. And... Uh, that was really interesting to read how basically these guys and and women there was sisters among them as well um would it was kind of like a war uh, what you'd know what you'd imagine the trench warfare in world war one to be like okay over the top let's go <laughs> into the next volley of machine gun fire but the, it wasn't machine guns and bullets it was mosquitoes and malaria mm. and they were dropping like flies yeah bad pun right um but this kept sending them this crazy like it's it's a psychology uh, that is I don't know where it exists certainly not in Irish modern society sure yeah. gone yeah um, and but there's something very very important in that mm. in, in that uh, determination towards a goal not necessarily uh, suicidal it has to have purpose sure you know but just to give meaning to to your hardship and your suffering and um, and Father Brendan had just moved to Mua Mission in Malawi from Zambia where he was still of this old school approach even though he's he's a young priest um, but basically what he would do is in this big, huge parish that he had in, in uh, Lundazi in Zambia. He'd go off for three weeks on his bicycle with one other helper that would kind of guide him along. Yeah. And he'd be crossing rivers with crocodiles and hippos and he'd go <laughs> and visit each little uh, outstation or little church or community that was part of the parish and had a few followers and he'd baptise the babies and mm. anoint the sick and say a few prayers and do mass and continue on his way for three weeks and that was the old approach of the Catholic missions back in the early 1900s they kept track of everything and the idea was that you were out away from the mission 75% of the time right. but you always had that week when you would come back in of the month mm. and recharge and get the social interaction sure and given that it is kind of a thing a method that has evolved and is tried and tested now for at least with irish missionary priests we're talking since the fifth century right since saint patrick arrived right around down father brendan's part of kerry in ireland that is where the saint brendan set out on a boat in i think it was the 500s or 600s mm. out to america Mm. Not that he knew 
if there was anything out there. <laughs> just set out with another f- bunch of fellas in the boat, like, oh, well, maybe there's people out there. <laughs> now, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, normally I'd describe myself as, I am following in a missionary approach, but without the Bible. Sure. There's no evangelization on, on, in anything that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that I'm against it, although maybe I'm not sure where I stand on it, but basically I know from a personal point of view, I just don't know. Sure. I don't know myself what my story is enough to be, or my understanding of the world and faith and, and religion is, and spirituality is enough to be able to, to talk uh, in any kind of, certainly not in an instructive way to any other faith or culture or people. Sure. Um, but the adv- the nature of adventure, and it goes back to Joe, I guess, you know, coming <laughs> home with the mudja, the Good old Uncle hat. Joe. Yeah. yeah, like, but without any kind of pushiness. Uh, um, that is, yeah, that's, I guess, uh, one way to say how it is tough being alone out there but if you adjust your time frame from the usual, what am I gonna do with my life this year? Where would I like to be in five years? Uh, just instead to, to just take an inspiration from those uh, missionary priests and nuns and saying, right, well, no, I'm not able to give my full life to this. I can't do what they've done there. And it's, it's an incredible, like if you sit and think about that sacrifice, as I've done many times, you, very quickly for me, I'm just in awe and because they give their lives, but not like, it's not like organ donation sure. at the end of your life. This sure. is in your prime, in your early years, in your, yeah. your, you start of adulthood, you say, right, I'm just going to do good things for other people and I'm going to give up family mm-hmm. and all that hope and forevermore. And I learned as well from living with, or, or from the dinners with Father Owen and Satima, there was a young Malawian priest in training there, you know, that they take vows every year for five years, just year-long vows right. um, of, uh, what is it, poverty, celibacy, and, you can't remember the last one. <laughs> I don't Those have are to. usually I the two big uh, ones. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, in preparation for the lifelong vow at ordination. Right. Uh, and I wouldn't want it, uh, or it's it's not a path that holds interest, but it's it's a path that I respect so much. That commitment, and once again, once you compare yourself to people who are that good, then yeah, seven more years on Chissy seems less daunting. Mm, yeah. Well, I've got one more large question for you before we wind down uh, Mm because we're kind of getting to the point of the podcast where we're you know uh, running out uh, we're not running out of time but Mm. trying to keep it within you know listening uh, (laughs) periods for people Um, I think one of the major themes of at least what I'm hoping to develop on this this podcast the Windcast one of the major themes especially when I'm interviewing people like yourself is trying to articulate or have you explain, have the guests explain what is it about what they're currently doing at an interior level? You were talking about that feeling, you know, when you mm. were kind of making your way to Chisi and there was something that was drawing you there, but you can't really explain it. And maybe this correlates with that feeling, but what is it about what you're doing now that makes you really come alive? 
or another way of phrasing it is like why like why why make the commitment to 2030 why does this make sense mm. yeah like what makes what makes you come alive when you're doing this work yeah um it's a good question i it's a hard one to answer as well <laughs> um all i know is that i have had when i have had real moments of just feeling so in the moment so good just so like time just melts away and the work is so satisfying on chissy over the last year mm-hmm. it's it's when i just embrace the work that i'm doing and without worrying about the future which is a big concern like, you know what, <laughs> for what, most people yeah i'll be 45 <laughs> years old when i get off this show <laughs> and and what will that mean for the things the other things i want in life um and and that creates anxiety i find thinking about the future and then the <laughs> i just lo- i just sorry to interrupt i yeah. just did a whole podcast my last episode that i published yesterday actually was describing mm-hmm. the anxiety about what about worrying about the future mm. and not knowing where I'm going. So mm. totally get it. Yeah. yeah, no, yeah. I, f- I found all anxiety that I've experienced in the last year. It's related to thoughts about the future. Mm-hmm. And then depression could creep in because of the loneliness and the isolation. Yeah. Um, and so on Chissy, it's so intense. It's just a fine line to walk. But if you can really, you know, this is a, the cliche of, of so many different bits you'd find online and stuff. But if you can live in the moment, if you can just be present and not worry about the next day and also in the term of I- in terms of isolation i'm not alone out there there's 4000 people living on this island right. but i have to give myself to that mm. entirely and to those people and uh, and and not just in a sacrificial way but in a like finding real genuine friendship with them uh you know the kind of friendship you'd have a couple of drinks of an evening with and a good chat much chill isn't that good yet but it'll, it'll get there and I think it's pretty it. good yeah I think it's pretty good it's not drinking good yet <laughs> um, but um, am I answering your question I think so yeah. what yeah it's if if you if I can if I can walk in that line and I'll never get I haven't been on it in the last year for more than a couple of days at a time and then you kind of fall off it and your mindset changes or somehow but once you're on it and at the same time then when mothers are bringing you their babies for a malaria test and to get medicine and kids are coming with skin infections and you're sending them to dermatologists in the whatsapp group in america and they're giving you back the the instructions on what to do or you've got 23 little kids coming to the preschool nursery class and they're all delighted to be there right uh that's that's such reward mm. like i i have found that nowhere else mm. and i think and here's maybe the thing towards people who might be on the cusp of a wondering if they could commit to something uh, that they're scared of um, there's there is great reward in uh, in putting yourself in that situation where you can help just by being there and that was the line from Father Brendan he'd just say I, I remember the the last time I went up there I'd already started to live on the on the island and I was telling him about how it was going and how certain things weren't moving ahead with the, the project as I'd hoped. And he just said, you know, just be with the people, Evan. 
just just give them your time and your attention. Everything will fall into place as quickly as it will ever is was ever going to happen, or it won't. Then no matter how much you stress about it, now <laughs> there's no point to it because it would have never happened anyway. Did you get it? <laughs> how encouraging! He's, he, oh, he's great. He's great. Um, and that is, uh, yeah, I I don't know. No, oh, it's great. Yeah. So, I <clears throat> like. I have one more question because you were talking about. As far as you you doing this, and if you can keep yourself kind of aligned or centered, mm. right, to be in the present moment. Mm. My follow up question would be to that for you: How do you do that? Like, how do? What are ways, practical, methodological ways, things that you might do that allow yourself to stay centered, to stay grounded, mm. to stay in alignment? Um, with the work that you're doing so that way you know the in in uh how do i explain this there's there's a catholic priest um he's he's passed away now his name is henry Nowen, mm-hmm. and he talks about the ministry of faithful presence everything that you're talking about like maybe some of as far as christian ministry is concerned theological articulation of that like the ministry of faithful presence pro- is likely the greatest thing that we can do is this, this ability to give up ourself for that of another. And in the Jesus tradition, you know, we, you know, Jesus emptying himself into the incarnation, this, we call this kenosis and this like, this self emptying for that of another. Um, but of course, <laughs> that that's, that's the Christ, you know, that's what we see modeled by his incarnation. But for us, you know, we're essentially called to do the same kind of thing you were talking about earlier with mm. this solidarity, which I think all of this is connecting to one another. So it's like, but for us and for myself in particular, we usually have to cultivate these certain habits, whether you're religious or not. Mm. Mm-hmm. We have to cultivate these certain habits that keep us aligned, that keep us focused, that keep us grounded in whatever is larger than ourselves. So for you, what are maybe some things that you do that keep you um, that keep you in that alignment? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I'll have a better answer to this question in a couple of years' time. Okay. Because um, I honestly haven't reflected on it much. Okay. Uh, but I know what helps me a lot is to journal. Mm. I I have a, a habit of I get up and with the first coffee I just take out the notebook and open it and. Uh, to write morning pages. It was a tip from a writing book that I picked up ages ago, The Artist's Way, which I've only read the first chapter of because mm. it's one of these books which gives you instructions and homework at the end of each chapter. <laughs> and at the end of chapter one, it says, do morning pages every morning. And I still haven't really done it really, really consistently. Sure. But basically, it's uh, the task was, you sit with an empty page in front of you and you write three pages of whatever comes into your head. Could be free association, could be anything. You can write down three pages in every single line. I Mm. have nothing to write today, (laughs) if you want. But you sit there and you do it. And then in the 20 minutes, the idea is, from a writer's point of view, um, it's to flush out the kind of the thoughts that are never gonna amount to anything, but Mm. you need to get them out. And then actually you'll see, oh, that's worth a bit more thought to expand on, uh, if if you thought from from a writing point of view. But um, I find that really useful. And then if you've had a dream that night before, or if there's something 
you know, weighing on you. It'll come out in those three pages, mm. as will your to-do list for the day. Mm. And it's it's really useful that way. Um, and I've written a lot in notebooks out there. Um, and then I suppose the techniques is t- to keep social interaction going, even if it's more work and less natural because you are by yourself out there. Um, you know, in normal, the day-to-day life, when you've got people in your household that you that you talk to, the, or if you've got a partner or whatever, um, you, you check any kind of crazy ideas you might have. They're, they can be voiced within a couple of days and then popping into your head. Mm. And then uh, they can be, you know, your, your partner might say to you, that is ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah. I don't have that, uh, you know, and, and that's what I miss. So that's that's where, that's why, um, you know, just to check in with good friends and people to talk things through every now and then. And I'm pretty sure that's part of the reason why, you know, saying that old school missionary approach that Father Brendan was doing, right. you know, it is three weeks out of four that you're out in the bush, but then you're back at the mission for one. So we'll just see yeah. to give you the... Yeah, you got to reconnect. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's it. Stay connected and write your thoughts, I suppose. They'd mm. be my two takeaways. I think those are great takeaways. All mm. right. So winding up. Um, there's okay. one thing. Yep. Sorry. Uh, mm, I can't give so much good PR to the Catholic Church uh, <laughs> without giving them some bad PR. Or, but it's more, okay. it's more so that my tribute today to the missionaries that I've mentioned uh, all by by chance it's the Irish Catholic missionaries so that my tribute isn't tainted by people at home who would think oh yeah but you know it's not all good in there either it certainly (laughs) isn't you know and there's just another scandal of paedophilia perpetrated by members of the Catholic Church at home uh, is just going through the newsreels now. Right. Um, and I don't trust um, the institution of the Catholic Church. I don't know if you've ever been to the Vatican. I haven't, personally, no. No, but uh, I visited um, once and I've never seen such opulence and decadence and mm. wealth so concentrated and apparently celebrated. Mm. Um as I have there, and, and I've travelled plenty of places and driven, visited castles and splendid, uh, fantastic buildings, but it, there's something that really irks me, like, what is the story with this? And just that an institution so powerful yeah. and that protects and protect. well, hopefully it's the past tense, but certainly in, it, in the past, it has protected people who have committed perhaps some of the most evil crimes that can be conceived of to, to abuse children and steal their innocence like that. Sure. It is, oh, I don't, uh, yeah. I have, that's why I, I would not be uh, an adherent of the institution of the Catholic Church. Sure. But it's so that my, it's, it's so that anybody listening to, to, to what I'm saying about the Irish missionaries out here, yeah. um, is that don't believe that that is the case for all of them. Mm. That there are 
men and there are women as well and women make the same sacrifice of giving up family life like that who who just make that vow and and stick with it right. and it is and like that's I, I've thought about it many times uh, over the last year just that how could you give up uh, that that will for family and the celibacy but you know they are they are towing the line right down and always and it's an amazing sacrifice and it is just they're they're just the best people I've met right they are uh, and they've really inspired me and uh, and also they are a dying breed there's no point in trying to dress it up nicely like you know father Brendan he's 50 he's the youngest I've come across for quite a while mm. uh, and they're not being replaced either mm. by by some other form of Irish missionary. They're certainly not being replaced in their in their current form as priests and nuns. Um, and and it's also from an Irish point of view, I think there's there the un how to say it. Um, there's a part of the Irish Irishness and the Irish psyche that is very very little known about at home. Mm. But that is so important and so fundamental and goes right the way back to St. Patrick, like 5th century. What, and it's part of what makes us Irish, I think. And it's disappearing mm. with these old priests and nuns. Mm. Um, and I, I don't know how it can be rekindled or just revitalized and re-energized, but it absolutely needs to be because people at home don't see it, partly because of the shame now of these individual good people within the institution of the Catholic Church right. who don't go home. They're already humble people, but they don't go home and and regale themselves and their works once they're home. So people at home don't know about what they, uh, such good they do. But, you know, there's a great value to an Irish passport. Mm. We're a neutral country. People sure. like us in general. But <laughs> most people at home don't see that except for when they go to America or wherever but I've come to many police roadblocks in Africa and they look for the ID passport please <laughs> and then they have a look Irish I say yeah ah. like Fada Joseph mm. you know and it's mm. it's they've, they've uh, <laughs> there's, there's a there's a respect that we have and hold because of the work of those missionaries that uh, needs to be more known about at home yeah yeah I think, man, yeah, we could probably talk for another couple hours about everything that mm, you just said because, indeed. you know, to just say a couple things on that, it's like, I think you just bring up a good point. When it comes to institutions themselves, whether it's the Catholic Church, whether it's a Protestant Church, whether whatever the institution is, you have your great people, mm. right? Like the Irish priests and nuns that you're talking about who have been serving here in Malawi specifically for such a long time. And then of course you have atrocities committed by other people and it's just not, this is something I've talked about frequently on this podcast and just generally with close friends of mine, it's just like, it's just not as black and white as yeah. we would like it to be. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot of gray, there's a lot of navigation, there's a lot of horrible things that have been done in the name of institutions, or at least to your point, historically, clearly, things that institutions have done to cover up because of the power that they have and that that they they <clears throat> they've the institution 
serves itself first and serves its own survival. There's a real dissonance with <laughs> Jesus' message, eh? Didn't he die for us? Yeah. They are not dying for the, yeah. for, for the people. And that's where the institution, there's, yeah. uh, it's that kind of self-perpetuating and self-survival is yeah. the priority, even if it means the destruction of innocence of a child and the, yeah. um, through paedophilia. The, the, yeah. Can you think of a more heinous crime? Right. Evil, to protect evil within your ranks yeah. in an institution that's intended yeah. for good. Yeah. Now, to, this is my last thing to say that's on great. it, but, no. but also um, I do think the Catholic Church is a force for good in the world. Hmm. And I've seen that one of those evenings sitting dinner with Father Owen, um, uh, car pulls up in the, outside in the, in the yard. It's like, this is late, seven o'clock, and somebody pulling into the yard. Right. And then when the Malawian priest goes and looks out the window, he says, it's the bishop's car. What? Hmm. The bishop's car pulling into her place seven at night. He goes out and he comes back in a couple of minutes later with an envelope, a big brown A4 envelope, and opens it up. And it's these printed and glossy paper, the Pope's last missile or edict on climate change and the environment. Hmm. 200 copies of so, half in English, half in Chichewa. Mm. And it was dated when the Pope said this, it was about six weeks ago. Mm. You know, what other institution has that kind of reach? Right. That the Pope can say something there right at the top of the, the organization. Right. And it was, it was bang on what he was saying as well. Uh, and that it gets out to the, the ends of the capillaries of the reach. <laughs> no UN agency, no NGO can do that, eh? Mm. And certainly no, not even government around the world has that kind of reach. Right. And it's just about pointing it in the right direction and yeah. cleaning it up and making sure, sure that uh, it prioritizes right. the, the survival of yeah. the most vulnerable rather than itself. Yeah. I think you're spot on, man. And I think, yeah, I think part of that cleaning up process generally for anybody, whether it's the Catholic Church or any other institution that is attempting to serve the world, especially especially in the Jesus tradition. We have to own up to our history, right? And I think I've told you, you know, history is like what I'm, church history specifically is one of my favorite subjects because as enlightening as it can be, it's also humiliating. And the church itself has to be willing to go to look back to see what it has done in the name of Jesus, all the all the things that have been committed, all the atrocities, I should say, mm. that have been committed under the banner of Jesus. And we have to we have to live with that. Not only do we live with it, we own it, we lament it. And now we have to begin the work of reconciliation. And it's much harder to do that work when especially in a postmodern society, when and, and, and in an age of technology where any blemish, <laughs> mm. anything can be seen, traced, um, it, it doesn't help. And it's, it, it has to start with integrity. And I think you're right. I think for many people, it compromises what, in my opinion, is the real core of the gospel, especially in the Jesus tradition, which is to love you know, one's neighbor, um, to love God and to love one's neighbor. And it kind of puts a question mark, I think, for all of us who are trying to live within this tradition, Mm. to work out of this tradition like myself. And it's hard. It's hard because I find myself, and I think we were talking about this on the first time at Kefi when we talked, it's like I have to be fairly careful about how quickly I reveal my cards 
to some people the fact that I'm working as a minister mm. because usually the term missionary or the term Christian comes with a lot of baggage. Mm. And generally speaking, historically speaking, it's not great baggage. It almost turns off the conversation immediately. And being able to have to kind of tiptoe around those kinds of things, especially with people um, who aren't Malawian. I mean, specifically in my experience, it's usually it's usually people who um, kind of come from this uh, pluralistic relativism kind of age, you know, that we're kind of we kind of find ourselves in, and it's really hard to explain. You know, mm. it's really hard to. Not that I am in any way, generally speaking, trying to be defensive of the faith. I don't think that's boring and mm. it doesn't work. Like, I'm not trying to defend anything or even argue for it, but trying to embody a different way of living, a different way of being in the world. Because I think at the end of the day, kind of like Uncle Joe and some of your uh, other mentors that you've mentioned, love is the only thing that changes people. Mm. You know, that's the only thing. Mm. I think Mother Teresa says that, and I think she's right. I think at the end of the day, that's that's what makes the most difference. And now I'm ranting. No, 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 I think, no. I, I hear you. Kind of, and actions yeah. more than words. Yeah. You know, uh, that was something that Sister Catherine said <laughs> to me just today. Uh, uh, she's going to be the trustee for Lemu.com, one of the board members. Mm. Uh, this Malawian sister. It was just she just made a pure love and wisdom mm. and um and yeah, she said something more eloquently than that, but just it, it's just about actions mm. you know and and it's true words can be interpreted so many different ways sure. in so many different languages, so many different cultures, but everybody can see an action and say, "Oh, that's good mm. that we need more of that right yeah, it's almost universal mm -hmm. so to speak. All right, well, last thing. For those people who are listening, if they want to get in contact with you mm -hmm. or they've heard about your story, they hear about the work you're do doing, they might want to reach out to you just to communicate or even potentially support you, yeah. what is a way or maybe multiple ways, and I'll also put this in the podcast notes for you. Um, I'll, I'll, yeah, we'll jot them down and I'll put it up there when I upload it. Cool. But what are maybe some good contact uh, mediums for people to get a hold of you just in case they're curious yeah. of continuing the conversation so ulemu.com is the website ulemu which means respect in Chichewa okay u-l-e-m-u -E okay that has you can send a message through the website that myself and Alva will receive my sister um, or on Facebook on Instagram on LinkedIn on Twitter my name is always the same, Evan Joyce, E-V-I-N-J-O-Y-C-E. -E, Wonderful. E yeah, thanks. Wonderful. Thanks yeah. very much. Yeah. Well, for all of you Windcast people, this is going to be the wrap-up of this episode. The sun has set here. Evan and I are sitting at a table. We've run out of coffee, and it's about time for us to go eat some dinner at Pakachiri. So yeah. for all of you listening... I hope you've enjoyed this this one, and may grace and peace be with you every step of the way. <laughs>